Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Uh, we would be remiss if we did not ask this question. You've been rumored. That, that sounds like the setup. Obviously, the remiss. I'd be remiss. Yes, the remiss. Yes, yeah. that sounds a little more yes than no. But uh, well, that's your that's your extrapolation there, Liam. You know, <laughs> Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Manuela Tobias, and I write about housing policy for CalMatters. And today, August 26th, 2021, a Thursday, we're talking about the topic that we cannot get enough of on Gimme Shelter. It is single-family home zoning. Oh, yes. Our absolute favorite topic. And definitely the oddest housing issue everyone seems to have an opinion about. So we're going to talking a little bit about the history of single-family zoning, a little bit about the state legislature's failed efforts to do away with single-family zoning, the current proposal to end single-family home zoning in the state, that is Senate Bill 9. So the bill is approaching final votes in the legislature, and there has to be a decision by September 10th, after which the governor will have a month to sign or veto the bill. So to talk about Senate Bill 9 and other issues, we have, as always, the perfect guest. Who is it this fortnight, Manuela? We'll be talking with LA City Councilman Kevin DeLeon, who represents areas surrounding downtown and east side neighborhoods. Kevin was the former leader of the state Senate. He was a state lawmaker up through 2018. He'll be speaking with us about the differences between how the state and local governments approach zoning, the divide between the Bay Area and Los Angeles lawmakers on housing, and SB9. He was part of a vote by the LA City Council this month on a resolution opposing the bill. But first, before we get into the meat of today's episode, it is the... The avocado of the fortnight. So this is our look at the most absurd or ridiculous story in all of California housing politics over the past few weeks. And for this avocado, I'd like to start with a question for you, Manuela. Okay. So how would you like to have $2 million in investments? I would love that. What, what do you have to propose here? <laughs> well, if this were you, you could be the subject of the, quote, advice column in publication Market Wash from earlier this month. I will read the Dear Abby. Does that still ring a bell? Who's the preeminent advice columnist these days? I read Dear Puppy on, <laughs> really? on the cut. Okay. Yeah, there's also Ask Polly. But these are more emotional advice columns, so I'm, I'm okay, curious what like we're getting into here. real estate <laughs> news like you get from Market Watch. So here's the prompt. I am an, quote, elder millennial with $2 million in investments, but a low monthly income. Should I spend my savings to buy a home in San Francisco? Knowing nothing else about the situation, what are your thoughts here? So I think that this is more a question for you being more the elder millennial. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, wow. um, All right. no, you, you can't walk that back. You already said it. You already no, said it. I'm not walking right. it back. So thoughts here. Two million is a lot of money. Curious how he made that and why doesn't he sort of keep going on that if it's worked out so well on buying a home in San Francisco. I mean, I personally could think of a better place where I would <laughs> like to live at the risk of offending some listeners here. But yeah, curious about the two million. So makes about 75000 a year plus, quote, occasional massive windfalls, which I think 
is a real key here. And the $2 million in investments sort of lands on weighing an absurdly early retirement with the need for homeownership. And our Market Watch advice columnist takes all this very seriously and ends on this note. Everyone needs a roof over their heads. After all, it's important to weigh whether housing is a money-making venture or a necessity. There you go. We have our sort of trust fund character here deciding on making this bet between buying a house in San Francisco for an absurd amount of money or keeping their absurd amount of money to potentially retire absurdly early. So you may think, why this? And I think it just felt, as soon as I saw the headline, it just screamed hate read to me. And also, as you've noted, an elder millennial, a little bit just irked by the whole situation. Yeah, I'm sensing a tone of jealousy. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I thought it was fascinating too. There's a bit in there where he talks about struggling to get a mortgage, even having all of this money. That definitely struck me as a bit ridiculous. Kind of frames it as if he can't afford a house, then who can? This is why we're here to help explain that. <laughs> great let's segue. Get to the, <laughs> great segue. So let's get to the, the main topic of our day, single family home only zoning. Manuela, why don't you first explain to us what single family home only zoning is? So first, zoning itself, the idea that you either have some land for retail, factories, landfills, some to be used only for apartments, and then you have the majority of land set aside for single families where you can build one house for one family on a lot. And if you want to build anything other than that, you're going to run into a lot of troubles with the city council and your neighbors and pretty much impossible to build anything other than that. And it's a big issue given that that's the majority of land that occupies our state. So it's important, I think, to make clear that this idea like house garage, backyard, perhaps even a barbecue, like that is pretty central to the notion and the selling, frankly, of what like the American dream and even I think even more precisely what the California dream has been over the past century. And I think that that's kind of part of the theme of what we're going to get at in this discussion. It's sort of the symbolism of what single family home only zoning is supposed to mean. A few more details on some of the stats here. Statewide, the best numbers we have is about two two-thirds of all the residences in California are single-family homes, and that's according to U.S. Census data. And then in terms of a survey that was done by UC Berkeley researchers, they found that between half and three-quarters of all the developable land in much of the state is zoned only for single-family housing. So it's the predominant feature both where people live, also, frankly, where people are allowed to live in California. So let's get in a little bit, Manuela, about some of the origins of single-family zoning, because that's something proponents of getting rid of single-family only zoning like to bring up a lot. So while now it's pretty much baked into the landscape and, you know, as you were talking, think of literally any movie and yet yeah, single-family homes is what you see, zoning for single-family homes was actually initially pushed as a tool for segregation after the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to explicitly ban people from living in a certain neighborhood based on their race. But of course, people found a way around that. And the first single family neighborhood actually sprung up in Berkeley to block a black dance hall from moving into a majority white neighborhood. And as a result, it became impossible to build anything other than a single family home, including multifamily units that would be 
more affordable to lower income families and families of color. So to some supporters of efforts to get rid of this type of zoning, it's really about tackling that history of segregation and racism. And that Berkeley, that was like about a hundred years ago, roughly, we're talking, right? Right. That was uh, 1916. That and then again, the pattern evolved after that to where it's now, again, this sort of this dominant form. Okay. So there's been this movement, not just in California, but around the country to talk about getting rid of single family home only zoning, not only for those origins, but also supporters of claim for housing affordability reasons. So the city of Minneapolis did it a few years ago, allowing fourplexes in these neighborhoods with some exceptions citywide. State of Oregon followed suit in 2019, allowing duplexes just about everywhere statewide. And recently the city of Portland has gone even further. And just one other note here, I keep saying kind of allowing fourplexes or allowing duplexes, it's important to kind of make the point that in all these proposals to get rid of single family zoning, building a single family house would still be allowed. There's no ban on building new single family actual housing. It just would be allowing for more than that. And this conversation certainly isn't new in California either. Liam, can you explain how the state legislature has already tackled this issue quite a few times, successfully and unsuccessfully. I'll talk about the the failures first, and that's been kind of ideas to go after single family zoning very directly. So back in 2019, one of the many parts of Senate Bill 50, which was a very high profile bill that would have increased allowable dense home building in many respects, was to get rid of single family home only zoning and then allow up to four plexes in most areas across California. So that bill failed for many reasons back in 2019, and then it failed again in early 2020. And one of the follow-up bills from that demise the same year was from Senate leader Tony Atkins. She's a Democrat from San Diego. Her bill was called Senate Bill 1120, and it would have allowed a duplexes and in some cases fourplexes on most single-family home-only parcels statewide. Now, that bill had not attracted nearly the same amount of intense opposition from predominantly uh, suburban homeowner groups and city governments as SB 50, and it looked like SB 1120 had enough to pass last year. However, as we detailed an episode of the podcast around this time last year, SB 1120 failed amid a very chaotic end of the legislative session. It actually passed both houses of the legislature, but that didn't happen quickly enough to get the final sign-off in the state Senate before everybody had to adjourn. The whole thing was very nuts. There was lots of finger pointing between Senator Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, a Democrat from the LA area who was to blame. During the debate, there was even a lawmaker who brought her crying newborn baby to the floor in a last ditch attempt to save it. So very wild. And so now here we are, fast forward to the beginning of this year, 2021, and Atkins decides to basically reintroduce SB 1120 as SB 9, and that's what we're here talking about today. By the way, we invited Senator Atkins to chat about this bill, but she declined. Just want to note, Senator, you're always welcome to have a discussion with us. In reporting on SB 9, I learned that it's actually already technically legal to have up to three units on a single family lot. So some supporters of the bill have said that this won't change things all that much. Can you explain, Liam, what's already legal to build? 
this is sort of the successful way, if you will, that lawmakers have gone after single family only zoning. And it's sort of a backdoor way to do it. Starting in 2016, lawmakers decided to try to make it easier to build these sorts of secondary homes on single family parcels, things like converting garages into houses or subdividing a home or having kind of small freestanding structures and yards. A lot of debates over what you should call these things, mother-in-law unit, granny, flats, accessory dwelling unit. Some of us like casita, really kind of a bunch of different terms, none of which are really truly perfect. But anyway, over the years, a bunch of new legislation has passed that says now we're at the point where just about anywhere in the state, property owners can build a backyard home of at least 800 square feet, as well as convert a garage, office, or spare room into that third living space. So basically, you can build three houses on one parcel. But I don't really think this is like that as like the true end of single family home zoning in the state. First of all, like practically speaking, all these kinds of houses you're allowed to build are necessarily kind of secondary or subordinate to the main house on the property. And then second, from a theoretical perspective, and this goes back to kind of what we were saying at the top about like what this means from a, I guess, narrative or theory perspective, like single family zoning is still there. I mean, you know, in fact, supporters of doing all these things with these casitas told me that they intentionally changed the state code on what to call these units from secondary unit to accessory dwelling unit to try to sidestep the politics on single family zoning. Just to add on a little bit to, I think from some of the research that has come out on who has taken advantage of the law and really built those out, because of the complicated financing, it's usually people that already have enough equity in their home who are usually wealthier, who can afford to build that extra unit. So when it comes to really adding on more to the housing stock and creating increased home ownership opportunities, it hasn't been the solution there either. Now, that being said, we probably should note, you look at some of the stats on like building and these have really kind of taken off all across the state sort of since that change statewide, which is coupled with some local changes as well. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I do know LA has seen like a gigantic boom in these sorts of units, both from legalizing these conversions that had already been existing for decades and also some of the new construction that was allowed as a result of these laws. With SB9, all of these kind of nuances about single-family zoning go away, and it would, in fact, end sort of frontally now single-family zoning. So why don't you tell us, like, what's exactly in this bill? The bill says that cities are going to have to allow a property owner to build two units on a single-family lot, given certain requirements, like the lot being big enough. That can be a duplex or two separate houses. And the other thing that they can do, and this is a little bit trickier, but this is what gets us to four units, is that the homeowner can subdivide their land into two parcels as long as a smaller one is at least 1,200 square feet. And they can build two units on the new parcel too. The idea being that the smaller parcel and the home or two homes on top of it can also be sold separately and perhaps more cheaply. There's also been a lot of discussion on how this will interact with existing ADU law that you just discussed, Liam. And the bill is pretty explicit about that too. So that garage unit or casita or home extension all count as housing units here. So you can have two duplexes on a lot, but you can't also have attached units to those. Or you can have two houses with attached units, but then 
no duplex as well. And then there's a couple amendments that were recently added that say that a city can actually veto a project if it poses a risk to health and safety. So the example that was brought up there was fire hazard. And the other thing that a homeowner, in order to take advantage of the second part of that, the splitting the lot and getting four units instead of just two, is having lived in the unit or signing an affidavit that they will be in the unit for at least three years. And that was introduced sort of as a measure to prevent investors or developers from buying up a bunch of properties and turning them into investment rentals, as opposed to a homeowner doing this themselves. So at base here, though, what happens if this bill passes is there's no more single family zoning. It's essentially double family zoning, I guess. Instead of limiting to one house on a parcel, you are limited at base to two houses. Right. And yes, we talked about all the nuances about that, but basically two instead of one. Exactly. And this applies specifically to single family zoning only. So if a city or an area already allows for multifamily, this isn't going to touch them. All right. So let's talk about some of like the practical impact of the two instead of one here. What would it actually do if it passes? So this is the big question, right? Because you've got fans saying this is going to make home ownership possible. This is going to make housing more affordable. And then you've got opponents saying like, this is going to end neighborhoods as we know them. I'm going to lose parking spots or shade or sort of the lifestyle. And these are all valid concerns or hopes, but the research indicates that impact is going to be a lot more modest than that. So the Turner Center at UC Berkeley put out a study that looked at the bill using current land values and development costs. And what they found is that it wouldn't make a lot of financial sense for developers to build a second unit and much less a third or fourth, as this bill allows, on most single family lots, given the cost of building more and the return that they would get on that. So actually building more than one unit would only pencil out in about 5% of existing parcels. That's about 410,000 lots of over 7.5 million single-family lots across the state. So it's kind of a small percentage of what could get touched. It doesn't seem like a lot of new housing here if the bill were to pass. But one of the things that's been interesting to watch about this bill from afar is the way in which much of the rhetoric, principally from kind of the suburban homeowner or neighborhood groups, has been just as heated about the destruction of neighborhoods, if you will, as Senate Bill 50, which, you know, I did cover, even though that bill would have had a much larger kind of practical effect on the landscape of kind of development in California. What do you make about, I guess, how heated the rhetoric has been about SB9? And remind us too what SB50 proposed. Yeah, so it was allowing for at minimum fourplexes in single family areas, but even in single family areas close to transit, for instance, would have allowed kind of mid-rise apartment complexes and then a bunch of other changes too. So significantly more allowable development under that bill than what SB9 would do. One thing I would definitely note about the rhetoric is that SB9 has been discussed a lot in conjunction with SB10. That's Scott Wiener's bill, Senator from San Francisco, to allow up to 10 units on single family zoning near transit or sort of job hubs in those denser urban areas. And that is cities 
would have to allow that, would have to vote that in. It's not as across the state as SB9 is. So those definitely have been talked about together. And again, so just note, you know, Wiener being the author of SB50 as well. So I would say that there is a lot of assumptions there that these are all pretty much doing the same thing, even though there really are pretty major differences between this year's bills and previous iterations. I would also note that organizing among these neighborhood groups has definitely increased. There was one town hall that had over a thousand attendees. So people are really paying attention to this and getting organized. A part of it too is just the time that it takes for organizations to pick up steam and organize. But at the end of the day, I think that whether you're adding four or six units, this is a pretty significant change to the way zoning is as we know it. And homeowners are pretty resistant to that change. And until it's actually seen play out, an unknown is going to seem pretty major. You know, reporting on this bill, I went door knocking in East Sacramento, you know, how people felt about zoning because there are quite a few of these signs cropping up opposed to changes to zoning. And East Sacramento, some places a bit of a wealthier, depending on the part of East Sacramento, but a bit of a wealthier enclave, but very close to downtown Sacramento as well. So there are many neighborhoods around there that are zoned only single family at the moment. Yes. So this is near, for example, where Ronald Reagan had a house in the fabulous 40s, you know, and the Lady Bird house. Lady Lady Bird House. House. Yes, Yes. exactly. One of my first stops here. Yeah. So I noticed a a lot of those signs and I just started door knocking and I actually found a woman who was leaving to walk her dog. And I asked, she could talk to me about zoning. And she told me to wait a minute that she would bring someone out. And out came her husband, Rob Wasmer, who actually teaches housing affordability at Sac State. And he's Ah. a fan of the podcast. Of course. So he was the perfect person to talk about this. And he told me that his neighbors are worried about their property values going down. And for good reason, that homes are people's nest eggs, their biggest asset. And adding more density, he found, could potentially have an impact on prices. So I think that is definitely one of the many factors that's playing into some of the pretty heated rhetoric here. And interesting, we should note that while this has not happened yet, there are some cities that are talking about putting SB9 aside, you know, doing away with single family zoning themselves, Sacramento being one of them. Sacramento is one of them. Yeah, perhaps it's something you talk about at the neighborhood party, you know, (laughs) know, there more so than others. Also Berkeley, well, in Southern California, I think, believe Culver City is discussing this. So anyway, back to SB9, what in your view have been some of the more compelling arguments against the bill? property values going up and gentrification taking place in black and brown neighborhoods because it's the neighborhoods with moderate land values and rising rents where development would most likely pencil out. Going back to where would this make financial sense? It's those areas where you're about to get a lot more bang for your buck on that land. And it's interesting, right, this issue of gentrification because you've got this bill to address the ills of racism that we talked about, potentially contributing to that very issue and more development taking place and displacing people who already live there. And then the other concern and going back to that issue of there's already 
quite a few cities like Sacramento considering this is you've got a lot of mayors and city council members across the state, over 100, saying this is an issue that needs to be considered locally. Adding more density could have impact on the sewer system, on garbage collection, on parking, on sort of the way that the city operates. And so this is really something that should be considered at that local level, as opposed to having the state just decide for cities what to do here. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I think, and I'm not taking away from the fact that, you know, every neighborhood is different and has specific concerns, but if the decision is being made locally, the decision basically everywhere, except for a handful of places that haven't even done it yet, is no. So that's been the reality is it's not just we like local decision-making, but also we like local decision-making and the answer is no. Exactly. And I think that's what happened with EDU law. It's been possible, but a lot of Local jurisdictions have been opposed for so long that the state stepped in and really made that possible. And so that's what experts have said about this same bill is these decisions have not been made at the local level. And that's why it's just been so hard to build more housing. And we're in the crisis that we're in now because at the end of the day, at the regional level, adding more housing has been found to lower prices over time. The issue here is what's going to happen at the neighborhood level. So I think that those issues of gentrification and of potential speculation, buying up properties, larger corporate interests, I think those really are the more valid concerns around the bill. When I asked experts who focus on zoning and gentrification what would happen, you know, I asked Yona Freemark, who's been on this show, who studied the issue at length, and he said, leaving neighborhoods as they are essentially assures that no new housing will get built. So it's kind of a dead end. So yes, there is the potential for gentrification, but gentrification is already taking place. So not adding any new housing won't necessarily solve that issue either. And it's the same for the issue of speculation, right? You've already got big corporate interests buying up single family homes. How is not building anything else going to necessarily address that issue? It's, It's a big question mark on what's actually going to take place. But I think that just circling back to the research that's out there shows us that Just making something legal isn't going to have that big of an impact. It's what happens afterwards that we'll actually see some results and actually get to dig into these questions. So we have a lot on this in our Gimme Shelter archive. Manuela just alluded to Freemark. He's a scholar now at the Urban Institute. We interviewed him about zoning changes, paper that he did. Oh, gosh, I want to say a couple of years ago now. So you can go find that in our archive. We also talked with some folks about increasing corporate ownership of single family homes and properties around California. That was also an episode we did, I want to say, a few years ago as well. And so if you want to learn more, we have you covered from compelling, of course, interviews from the past. And speaking of that, why don't we get to our interview today? Let's hear from L.A. City Councilman Kevin DeLeon. So we are here with L.A. City Councilman Kevin DeLeon. He represents Council District 14, which is downtown L.A. and east side neighborhoods. Councilman is also a former leader of the California State Senate. Councilman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'll get us started. So the last time on this podcast, 
Liam and I devoted the entire episode to how hard it's been to pass major housing legislation. And one of the things we found is that these sort of major difficult issues, it's a question of priorities for those in positions of leadership. So when, as Senate leader, did you decide to make addressing the housing crisis a priority for you? You know, my expertise as the former leader of our California State Senate was the issue of climate change and the environment and issues when it comes to human civil rights, but in particular, immigrants, immigrant rights, driver's license, sanctuary state, also gun and ammunition regulation. So that space, when it came to the issue of housing, affordable housing, I always sort of kind of gave it to those former city council members, those former county board supervisors, those who already had both expertise and experience as well when it came to the issue of affordability in the housing crisis in our cities, in our counties, in our regions, and throughout the state of California as a whole. It wasn't until the last few years when it was about putting a major bond before the voters that I started to roll up my sleeves. I love negotiating. I love negotiating when the stakes are extremely high. So that was the very first time I started getting involved more intimately, but especially on the issue of homelessness, no place like Mm -hmm. home. When I took roughly about $2 billion surplus dollars from the 58 counties up and down the state of California and believe that the money should have been used a little more judiciously in terms of immediate investments for those who are chronically homeless but severely mentally ill. We worked out a deal with then-Governor Jerry Brown, put inside the budget, win-win situation, even though counties throughout the state vehemently oppose the measure, the idea. But nonetheless, we got it passed. But we were sued almost immediately, and we were tied up in litigation. So I had to make a decision. Do we sort of kind of go around the litigation merry-go-round, not knowing what the potential outcomes would be? Or do I make a decision then and now, which is to move forward legislation that would require two-thirds vote from both houses, didn't have a supermajority at the time, so it it would require Republicans to come on board and actually place it on the ballot, in 2018, just uh, three years ago, which was Proposition 2. And I made the decision to just go for it. You just don't know what's going to happen in terms of the courts and the appellate process. So we got Prop 2, and that's when I really started getting involved in homelessness funding as it relates to housing. And now here I am, a city council member, representing the largest number of unhoused individuals in the entire city of Los Angeles, but I want to put this in context. I represent more unhoused individuals in my city council district than every major city in America, except for New York City. That includes Chicago and Houston, the third and fourth largest cities in America. So that gives you context of, I didn't compare apples to apples, the city of LA with other municipalities. I compared a city council district with other cities, Sacramento, San Jose, Oakland, Seattle, Cleveland, Miami, Washington, D.C., and so forth. So that gives you the magnitude of the crisis, and I've inherited the number of individuals, uh, but I feel honored at the same time to represent them, especially Skid Row. One thing we're trying to get at with that first question was really 2017, when you were leader of the Senate, when that kind of housing package was put together, you know, a number of bills, and there was money attached to it. There was another bond, Prop 1, that also was for affordable housing. In addition to Prop 2, there was legislation that added a fee for affordable housing and others that would streamline some zoning rules. That was all put together, though, as part of a process you negotiated. And maybe you could take us through, like, how that actually worked. Like, how did the deal for all of those things come together? And were there other things, you know, we had heard it talked a lot about, you know, climate change legislation, a priority of the governor, and also you kind of being linked to some decisions that were made to kind of move everything together. How did that all 
work out. You know, when we're talking about the issues of climate, carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide equivalent, when we talk about miles travel, when we talk about land use policy making decisions, both at the local and state level, we decided to link our greenhouse gas emissions, our carbon dioxide equivalent emissions from tailpipe to the acute need of affordability in the issue of housing, especially with the decades failed policies, the local county and state level when it comes to the issue of inventory, but specifically not just inventory for inventory's sake, but affordability very specifically and not letting just the market sort of dictate, if you will, the winners and losers, which we have historically done in California. So it was important that as we move forward this package, linking it with climate change, that we would provide the necessary investments. Unfortunately, now through a different perspective, it was clearly not enough. So before we move to some of the local stuff, I want to kind of pick on one other issue related to state politics on this. As I was writing about what was happening in the legislature for a few years, I noticed a lot about the divide between Bay Area and LA lawmakers on housing issues. This is sort of apparent for a while, but it really came to head actually when you were out of the legislature in Senate Bill 50, the kind of the big upzoning measure in 2019. But you know, you have in the legislature and the state capitol, you have the governor from San Francisco. You have both leaders of the Assembly and Senate Housing Committees also from San Francisco. So I guess from your perspective, given the experiences you've had here, what do you think Bay Area kind of lawmakers and leaders do not understand about how housing works in L.A.? Well, listen, I have a lot of respect for my friends and colleagues in both the Bay Area, both in the city as well as the East Bay, in the South Bay. But Northern California and Southern California, as we know, are both facing a housing crisis. We have totally different codes. We have different funding. We have different regulatory histories. And and quite frankly, we have different municipal languages. But one of the interesting things is that while no one in California is nearly producing what we know enough affordable housing, I think it's important to recognize that year after year, the city of LA actually produces the largest volume of housing in the state of California. It's all relative, no question about it. But while LA applies the best practices in the state, clearly we need a lot more best practices to apply if we're going to meet our sizable goal. I appreciate my friends in the Bay Area, but there are some very acute differences. Median income are huge differences. Southern California, in particular, obviously, the idea of having a front yard and a backyard and the single-family homes is sort of the life of suburbia that attracted so many Americans from all over the country to come to sunny California, especially when the Rose Bowl was being played during the winter months on the East Coast and the Midwest. Folks would see, like, wow, orange trees, lemon trees, front yard, backyard, a swimming pool, a single-family home. Let's pack it up. Let's leave Michigan. Let's leave Ohio and, and so forth. And let's head out to the West Coast and let's go out to sunny Southern California. So South Bay in the Bay Area, specifically Santa Clara County in in the city of San Jose, they're very similar actually to Southern California. Obviously when you're in Oakland and then when you're in the city of San Francisco, you get the cultural distinctive feel, Uh, you get the architectural differences, the more density. But when you go south to uh, the peninsula, you go into Santa Clara County, Sunnyvale, Mountain View, the city of San Jose, Milpitas and so forth, it's very similar to Southern California. And I think those are some very distinct cultural differences that must be factored in if you're going to be successful politically 
in moving the product in whichever way it's manifested through a Senate bill or an assembly bill across the finish line and actually put pen to paper and get it signed into law and making it statutory so we can move forward the policies that ultimately help improve the human condition for all individuals. I want to ask you both about SB 9 and 10, but we spent a lot of this episode with Liam talking about SB 9 specifically. You are part of a vote opposing changes to single-family zoning at the state level, at the city council. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, why the opposition, specifically to 9, and then we can get into 10. Let me say a couple of things. One is, is I respect the intent of the state legislature and you know my successor, Tony Atkins, with SB 9, in trying to respond to the critical issues surrounding the housing shortage that's fueling the housing crisis. However, the bill is not going to get what LA needs, which is new affordable and moderate income housing along the transit corridors. We need the best incentives and streamlining options to require or incentivize affordable housing as a component of all market rate development. So I don't think that SB9 gets us there yet. What LA urgently needs is for the legislature to repeal Article 34, which puts a cap on how many units of publicly funded affordable housing cities can build for each council district. Currently, I've got nine, nine units left for my total allocation, CD14. So I know that SB9 passed the assembly floor sometime earlier today. For me, in my district, downtown LA, is projected to have about 170,000 new residents coming in in the next two decades. And that is primarily vertical, high-rise buildings. You don't have to expand horizontally. There's no swimming pool maybe on the rooftop or inside the building, but it's not swimming pool in the backyard or front yard. But then at the same time, I have Boyle Heights, and Boyle Heights is a historically Ashkenazi Jewish community that became Japanese, Japanese-American community. Then it's become largely a Latino, Mexican-American immigrant community, which it is today. And those housing needs are very, very different than other parts of the city, other parts of the state, where individuals, families are worried if they're going to be displaced or gentrified. And therefore, you have to have guardrails that will protect communities such as Boyle Heights from the very strong market forces of gentrification. One thing I've learned is that market forces are very, very powerful. They're much more powerful than governors, than Senate pro tems or assembly speakers. They're much more powerful than mayors. They're much more powerful than the most powerful position in the world, which is president of the United States. So market forces run amok. It changes quite rapidly the character of communities. And this is a community that historically has been very vulnerable. It's been marginalized. COVID-19, the global pandemic has eviscerated this community because in the highest peak stage of infections, if LA was the epicenter for infections, then Ball Heights was actually ground zero for the number of infections as well as mortality rates. So many of these community members are holding on by a shoestring, not knowing if in fact they're going to be part of a new tsunami of folks who are currently housed and all of a sudden they're going to be unhoused when that eviction moratorium expires altogether. So that's what's at stake here. It's not as easy as more production, more inventory as a result. And that's why it's my hope as it comes back for concurrence that there'll be a little more work done. On the affordability side, that's definitely been an argument that's been brought up quite a bit. There's no affordable units created necessarily here, but there is a need for additional housing at every income level. And so the argument behind this bill and others like it is you need to bring more housing on board for that sort of 
middle income level so that that person doesn't gentrify another neighborhood and makes it a little bit more possible to access a place that they may not have otherwise. And then on the question on gentrification, the point that me and Liam were talking about before is not adding any additional housing units is not necessarily solving that either. And the gentrification and displacement that we're seeing take place today is already happening, right? There's already buying of single families' uh, homes. I guess my question is, why not both? When it comes to affordability, do you think that a bill necessarily needs to address all of those issues? And if not, through adding more housing, what do you think is a better way to get at everything that you just laid out? Let me try to tackle your question in a very general way. The way you laid it out, I don't believe it's an either or that for those proponents of either argument, those are false narratives. Number one, we know that there's an inventory issue in purchasing a single family home. Right now, we are not going through a housing crisis bubble like what we experienced when the market fell out from under us. Because the folks who are buying right now have very good FICO scores. They have very good jobs, disposable income. They have a good sizable amount of money for down payments. So when you take a $700,000, $50,000 house, an $800,000 house, and offers up to a million dollars are being made, that will clearly exclude a lot of folks from achieving that single-family home dream that everyone aspires in a great state like California. But building more stock, in itself does not equate to accessibility nor affordability for low income or moderate income working families. I haven't seen the data points that says if you build it, they shall come. Question is who's they specifically? And that's why I think, and this is just me speaking, that if we're going to move policies with public tax dollars, local, state, federal dollars, there has to be a sense of intentionality and a sense of purpose, or what are the expected outcomes that we desire? For example, the city of LA is a city of 4 million plus. We're the second largest city in America. But I would argue, and I think a lot of folks would concur with me, that there are many neighborhoods, amazing neighborhoods in the city of LA, where there's not a lot of folks that are raising their hands and say, hey, come build over here. We want more densification. We want vertical uprise buildings. But there's one area that folks are like, go for it. We love the idea. That is downtown LA. But if we go there, the question is, what kind of downtown LA do we build? We build a downtown LA that's just for some, but not for all. Or is it going to be mixed income, very low income, moderate, workforce housing? Also, I want to put this in context because LA has done a great job. And we don't need help from the state to convince us or incentivize us to build more luxury market rate housing. Because LA has done a great job doing that. So housing policies, you know, and the way we dictate them have a profound impact on the human condition. We allow the market just to run amok and we try to perhaps incentivize with this tax credit or that tax credit. Affordable housing has been too tepid, too weak, lukewarm, has not been strong enough. And as a result, every elected official from Congress to the legislature, to county board supervisors, to council members, to mayors are facing the real life impacts of those who are living 
in experiencing homelessness and the potential tsunami tidal wave of individuals who may fall into homelessness because the eviction moratorium will expire soon. And quite frankly, they don't have money to pay the back rent that's due since last March of 2020 because they have no job, because they are essential workers, but quite frankly, they've been treated like expendable workers. One more issue on single-family zoning. You referred to this a few times in the conversation, almost like a mythos. You're talking about the people who, from Michigan or Ohio, seeing the Rose Bowl on TV and wanting to come to get their backyard and barbecue and single-family house in LA. And you also talked about that, again, kind of being something that's aspirational. How much do you think that sort of symbolism, if you will, about single-family zoning and what it represents influences a lot of the debate and conversation about whether we should change it or not? It's very powerful. There's no question about it. It is a very powerful allure part of the narrative of California, especially the South Bay Area and Southern California. And I don't have a critique of single family homes per se. That has been the dream. But we know that because of land costs, we know because of our land use policies, it's very difficult to keep expanding horizontally. And therefore, we have to rethink. For those who have the good fortune of actually purchasing or perhaps are purchasing right now to get into a single family home, then they're going to be fine. They're going to be good. It's those individuals who still harbor that aspiration, that dream, that goal, where it's going to be really, really tough. If they get access to it, it's going to be at a extreme premium because it's just very difficult. Now, I know that through SB9 and maybe other types of measures, making it much more flexible, if you will, to take a single family lot and convert it into multiple units from a duplex to a fourplex, that that's an idea, a concept being brought forth to help with the housing crisis. And I understand it conceptually, and that's why I applaud Tony Atkins. Obviously, you've heard the concerns from many folks throughout the state of California, what it means for the character of their unique neighborhoods. Simultaneously, the example that I gave was downtown LA is poised to receive close to 200,000 new residents. And I think the vast majority of residents and housing for the city of LA will actually be done in downtown LA. So for me, the question is not just sort of more inventory stock, but the question is what type of housing will be produced and for who specifically? Be mindful about one thing too, because not all individuals who are experiencing homelessness are folks who are severely mentally ill, schizophrenic or bipolar, or drug users. A good majority of them are there for economic reasons. The longer you stay on the streets, that spiral downwards gets worse and worse. And, and that's why we have to move quickly with a sense of urgency, much better than we've been doing at the local level and state level in terms of the accountability that's needed to produce the housing for all different income levels, not just a general if we build enough stock, then miraculously, everyone will have access to different types of housing. I just don't see that happening. So to go back to the zoning question, because I did want to circle back to SB 10, I think that there's a key difference with that one in SB 9 in that there is that local control element. That's the bill to allow up to 10 units on single family lots near transit and job hubs. And so the bill supporters all stress this fact that it's about local control, about giving cities this cheap and efficient tool to build more housing if they choose. And so I want to understand a little more that aspect of local versus state. 
control over zoning, that bill specifically because the city council still chose to oppose the bill. I'm wondering there what what was sort of the reasoning if this is yet another tool in the toolbox to address the housing crisis. It's a little difficult for me to sort of give a perspective of 14 other colleagues and, and the different reasonings. I would venture to say to respect all of my colleagues that some of them had different motivating factors in, in opposition of Senate Bill 10. And the idea of local control clearly, obviously, is sacrosanct with many local officials throughout the state of California. I do believe there's been a good number of local officials who, quite frankly, have abused it, weaponized it in a way not to produce the inventory that's needed. And as a result, here we are. But I do believe that with regards to Scott Wiener's Senate Bill 10, Whatever the outcome is, coming back for concurrence, and if it lands on the governor's desk, whatever the outcome may be, I know that's enabling legislation. So local governments have the choice whether they want to effectuate it or not. But I think that the city of Los Angeles, in some way or fashion, is going to have to effectuate the necessary changes, the zone changes that you make reference to, to start building the affordable housing that's required, whether it's manifested through Senate Bill 10 or it's done so organically. In some form or shape, the dams are going to break, is what I'm saying. And there's going to be the changes that are critical to build the supply that's needed to house everyday Angelinos. One of the issues that Liam and I had discussed was when it comes to that local control so far, that's meant no, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So if this isn't the answer, why hasn't there been a, a different local solution? Well, you just kind of restated what I just said a few moments ago in terms of council members, local officials throughout the state of California sort of weaponizing it and utilizing it for a reason, a pretext, a justification not to build the inventory, the supply that's needed to house their local respective residents in their respective municipalities up and down the state of California. I've been here for nine months. I'm not the local historian. I wish I could give you sort of a colorful play-by-play as to why they made decisions not to do it. Listen, all you have to do is go out in the streets every single day. You see encampments almost in every neighborhood in Los Angeles. You see Angelinos are standing wrapped around blocks waiting to pick up a box of food so they can feed their children. An eviction moratorium is the only thing that's standing between them keeping a roof over their head or living out in the streets is going to start moving a lot of local governments throughout the state of California, but especially here in L.A. to effectuate the necessary changes that are critical to build more housing, more specifically affordable housing for very low income and workforce. So you just referenced eviction protections that exist state level and in L.A. L.A., I know, has had some trouble, and you've called this out, spending money that's available for rental assistance that's been given from the federal government through the state, through the city. There was a time, I believe it was a period of months, when no Angelinos could actually apply for that rental assistance, even though the money is available because the application process was closed. I know there's been some recent changes that hopefully will allow folks to get access to that money now. Why has it been so difficult, do you think, for the city and the state to make this process work when you have literally billions of dollars available for people in dire need of that money? Liam, you share in my frustration. And as you pointed out, I called it out at a press conference with uh, my uh, former colleague and uh, assembly member who shares my district, uh, assembly member Miguel Santiago. And it has been increasingly frustrated to see hundreds of millions of dollars sitting in bank coffers 
while the need is so gargantuan, the panic, the anxiety among everyday Angelinos increasing through the stratosphere because they don't know if they're going to be evicted or not. And while you have money that's sitting in the accounts right now, move the dollars out. You got to move the dollars out. To me, I've said that it's almost equivalent to the catastrophe of Katrina and you had all folks from New Orleans housed in the Superdome and blocks away, you have a warehouse full of food and clean, fresh water, and they can't figure out logistically how to get the food and the clean water down so many X number of blocks into the Superdome. To me, it's the equivalent. It's it's mind-blowing. It's frustrating. The New York Times, I think, just did an article the other day that pointed out that a lot of states and local municipalities throughout the country have probably pushed out only about 5% of the rental assistance that are sorely needed by the residents. And this puts the landlords, obviously, in a conundrum. This puts the tenant, the renter, in a conundrum. And to me, there's simply no excuse. You got the money. We appropriate the money. The money belongs to taxpayers. Cut the damn check and get it out to them now. What is the problem here? What is the problem? Yeah, I right. guess. what is the problem? Yeah. The problem, you know, I'm not, I can tell you this, I'm not McKenzie or, you know, KPMG and doing a forensic, <laughs> you know, audit, but I think it's systems. I think it's processes. I think it's bureaucracy. And quite frankly, I do believe we have bureaucracies who don't share the same sense of urgency and panic and anxiety that everyday Angelinos, everyday Californians are feeling every single hour, every single day. Listen, Californians have been under the most incredible stress, unlike anything we've ever endured before. We've endured and we're enduring, you know, wildfires. We've endured earthquakes. We've endured economic recessions. I've been, you know, regional in scope and, and national and global. But we've never, ever endured a global pandemic that has brought us to our knees, that has shut down the economy. We were doing a, a major food giveaway just the other day. And beyond breaking stereotypes, you had BMWs and you had Mercedes-Benz in line popping up their trunk so we can put the box of food or boxes of food in their trunk. This has had a profound impact on a lot of Californians and perhaps those at the highest economic echelon have done well during this pandemic, but the middle class, the lower middle class, our working families have been eviscerated and devastated. So it's our job actually at the state and local and federal level to make their lives easier by getting our acts together, by making sure the systems that are created or the systems that we inherit are ones that actually work so they can get the damn check in their hands or into the hands of the landlord so they don't have to fear that sense of panic that I don't know if I'm gonna be living out on the streets as a single mother with my kids. Well, Councilman, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure speaking to you again. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like what we're offering, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast service you listen on. It's important so that people can discover us. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. And I am Liam Dillon with the LA Times. You can find me on Twitter at Dillon Liam. As always, it's been a pleasure and we'll uh, talk to you next time.